One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. And welcome to Planet Normal, a Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Co-pilot Pearson and I are having a well-deserved summer break from steering the rockets of right thinking. But to help keep you sane, dear citizens of Planet Normal, during the month of August we'll be bringing you some classic interviews from our Planet Normal archive over the last year. The discussions we've had on our flying refuge of reasoned views. In June, Alison spoke to John Chappell, a cancer patient in his early 30s, who had written to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Prior to lockdown, John, who had just married his childhood sweetheart, was diagnosed with a small polyp in his bowel. Lockdown-related delays to appointments and treatments meant a minor issue, then turned into inoperable cancer. John's now crowdfunding in a bid to pay for life-saving treatments in Germany. He's understandably furious at how, during lockdown, the NHS became what critics have called a COVID-only service. First, I began by asking John Chappell to tell us what happened when he first sought medical help. They did some tests, referred me for a, a colonoscopy. This was the first example of something getting pushed back due to COVID. That initial appointment was pushed back, I think, three or four months until the summer. Um I went in for that appointment. They found something called a polyp. They're benign. They're not cancerous, but they're considered pre-cancerous. So they're considered there's a good chance that eventually turn into cancer. The sensible thing to do would have been to hoik it out there and then. Unfortunately, I think it was a bit big at the time. They didn't have the right tool for it. So he said, I'll get you back in. We'll take it out. Um, the way it was communicated to me, it wasn't a big deal. It was just something that some people had and it would be taken out. Obviously, there was another lockdown, then there was another lockdown, and, and, and the whole time things kept getting pushed back. And as you say, it sort of turned into a, a COVID-only service. You'd had this polyp found. You needed to get it out. What were your communications then with, with the health service about when this was going to happen? My communications were that I would periodically get a letter through the post through one or two private companies, which the NHS had obviously sort of foisted this thing off to. And they were letters which effectively said, you're in the queue, you're going to get seen, you know, don't worry too much about it. So I, I didn't worry about it too much. Did symptoms start to get worse? They started to get worse and that's when I started to get worried. They didn't get worse for probably six to eight months maybe. I don't think they got noticeably worse. By the time I was actually seen, I mean, I was just in, in, in agony. Uh, all the chasing was on my end, you know. I still had to keep phoning the hospital and saying, when am I going to be seen? Something's not right. So obviously I didn't know it was cancer at that point. I had what I thought was sciatica sort of pains, you know, numb legs, that sort of stuff, which I now know in hindsight was a tumour sort of pushing on the nerves or whatever. Before we talk about that and the surgery, 
you say that you discovered later that the doctor who performed the colonoscopy had marked the removal not urgent. This was something I only discovered when I started investigating it. I decided to appoint some some legal counsel to see if there's anything that can be done on that front. They obviously did all the work of pulling all my medical records, getting all this stuff that I didn't have access to. The guy that did the colonoscopy, even though this polyp was sufficiently large that he didn't have the tools available to remove it at the time, he marked it as yeah not urgent on my medical records because I was... 32 at the time it was considered in the I suppose the medical orthodoxy at the time that someone that was 32 years old it's extremely unlikely that it would turn cancerous in the uh, immediate future they opened something called a serious incident report in the hospital they did a whole investigation and they've discovered that this was you know a serious failing on their end and they've changed their guidelines in future so that they'll treat every polyp that's discovered as, as being sort of equally urgent as needed to come out despite the patient's age john you're a clever bloke you obviously were aware that this was not a good situation But even you, being sort of clever and articulate, it was very difficult, wasn't it, to access any service at that point? It absolutely was. I think I'm like you and a lot of people listening to this and a lot of people you've had on. I felt very much like a sort of voice crying out in the wilderness at times. And I found it extremely surprising that there were lots of other intelligent people that just went along with this. It seemed to me extremely obvious that just because time... I know time didn't stop. A lot of people did feel like time had stopped. If you were furloughed and, you you know, you were, it was a nice summer, you were sat in your garden sipping wine and baking banana bread, and it probably did feel like time had stopped for you. But for people like me who were incubating something in their bodies or for people with, you know, heart disease or whatever it was, time didn't stop for those people. Time carried on going. Just because everything else ground to a halt, it didn't mean that these diseases didn't keep progressing. Obviously, it's caused me a lot of you know, trauma and my, and my family, and it's it's had incredible sort of um, emotional effects. But in terms of from a pure financial angle as well, I would say if the NHS had to just cut this thing out, I mean, it would have cost them next next to nothing. I've had eighteen rounds of chemotherapy now, um, including drug that I gather is quite expensive, a sort of targeted immunotherapy sort of treatment, which is costing a lot of money. I've had radiotherapy, I've had some, you know, surgery. So yeah, if they just had have been a little bit more forward thinking, a little less reactive and a bit more proactive, I mean, it would have been in everyone's best interest from 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 an emotional and from a financial point of view. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help anyone, this sort of failure to, to get on top of these things before they get so bad. Did it make you feel angry? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's, that's probably the main emotion that's keeping me going at the moment, the sort of <laughs> bloody-mindedness to just keep persevering because um, I felt at times... This is probably unfair, but in terms of how I've been refused further treatment and further surgery, I sort of have felt at times like it would just be easier if I just went away and, you know, curled up in a corner and died. And that would be the the, the easiest thing for everyone. But I absolutely refuse to do so. It's not my fault I'm in this mess. It is someone else's fault we're in this mess. And I think they have a responsibility to do something about it. So I'm not going away, you know. Were you in shock when you got that diagnosis? Were, were, were the family with you, Nikki, your wife with you when they, you were told that? It's just, just a, they didn't actually remove the polyp because the polyp by that time had turned into cancer. So I, I went in for this this 
uh, operation to remove the polyp and obviously he saw what was in there saw it was cancer and there was no removing the polyp anymore because presumably it's been swallowed up by all the other stuff that's grown around it so yeah I initially got taken to a, a little room in the hospital and they said some nurses will be with you shortly and I thought oh god I know exactly what's coming now they told me I had cancer in that December and then I think it was the first week of January I, I went in and met this oncologist and um, so I'd had a few scans I sort of had an inkling beforehand that it it wasn't going to be good and then obviously it had we were told by the doctor that yeah it's stage four we've also seen some um, lesions in in your liver stage four just means it's spread to another organ but yeah it's like it's like being hit by a truck you know when someone says stage four I mean I know now that it's not but at the time I didn't know anything about cancer and that sounded to me like it, he was saying it was terminal and this is you know you're too you're too far gone and you know you hear stage four cancer you think well that's that then yeah I remember coming out of there and saying thinking I was going to die and saying I don't want to be scared to die that was my first instinct I was already preparing myself to die you know and I thought there's nothing worse than people who are who are terrified to die and I really didn't want that for myself but I was already sort of planning how to die and not be scared about it. In February 2022 now let's remind ourselves this is two whole years after you first sought help from the doctor with a stomach complaint you did finally start treatment John radiotherapy followed by chemotherapy and in July you had surgery to remove the right side of your liver. And we, the chemo and surgery did seem to work, but the cancer grew back in your liver within a couple of months. And that's when you were told no further treatment was possible. Did it feel like a door was then being slammed shut? Yeah, it definitely did. And I think the, I don't want to criticize my oncologist and my care since they, it was diagnosed because it has actually been pretty good once they actually figured out I had cancer but it did feel a bit yeah like a door had been closed a little bit I feel like they did give up on me a little bit then I think initially I was whacked with all this high doses of radiation high dose of chemotherapy then we got to the surgery I think if it I was off chemo for about three or four months, I think, following the surgery because you have to to let it heal. And I think if it hadn't have grown back in that time, it would have carried on being full steam ahead. We're going to try and cut out the main tumour now. You know, it's a chance if you've been cured. But because it had grown back, they're obviously reluctant to go back in. They decided it won't be of clinical benefit to me because it's still a risky operation and they don't just want to keep opening you up over again and again. And I, I do feel like that the thinking changed a little bit at, at that point they basically said your best bet is to stay on chemo indefinitely it's a horrible thing to be told chemotherapy it does work but it's, it's absolutely horrible I mean it's how, how many days a month do you feel what you would think of as relatively normal a month probably four or five days I have it in two weekly cycles I generally feel sort of human towards the end of that that two weekly period just before the next dose of chemotherapy. I generally get, you know, one good weekend every two weeks. So, yeah, I'll get a couple of all right weekends a month. And obviously there's a lot of pressure then to try and fit things in and make the most of it and things. So um, it's really horrible, horrible stuff. So to, to be told that... Um, by uh, by the experts that we recommend you just you just stay on this stuff indefinitely to try and keep it at bay. It's not really much of an option as far as I'm concerned. 
John, you set up a, a GoFundMe page to crowdfund private treatment. You had an initial target of £75,000. We will give a link to that page in the show notes so listeners can show their support for you, John. I know they will want to. Now, you write on that page, oh dear, I'm going to get upset if I read this out. I refuse to accept that this is the only life I have left. I'm young, recently married, otherwise healthy and a victim of mistakes by the same health service, which now refuses me further treatment. I have to believe I can still be cured and I owe it to my loved ones to do everything I can to get there. Now, John, this treatment you're hoping to get, very expensive, not available on the NHS or even in the UK. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so if you hear about people talk about cancer vaccines, which sometimes come up in in the news every now and then, they're called dendritic cell therapy. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's basically the same principle as a vaccine where a vaccine would stimulate your immune system to to fight a disease that's it's the same principle they basically take your blood analyze it for all the various markers and mutations and that sort of stuff which makes your cancer your cancer which makes it unique to you and then they're able to create a vaccine based on that information so the idea is that you have these jabs and then it stimulates your your body to attack the cancer it's, it's amazing stuff really and i think I don't know, I suppose in 20, 30 years or so, I mean, this should be the standard treatment for cancer, these sort of personalised treatments. But at the moment, it's just, it's so expensive and it's in such an early stage. So unfortunately, I'm having to go out with the begging bowl a little bit. It is unfortunate, isn't it, that such personalised treatments are still decades away from being available on the NHS. I was talking earlier to Professor Pat Price on your behalf. Pat is now saying that we're receiving a very rudimentary standard of cancer care in the UK compared to what patients can expect in other countries with a similar size of economy. What do you think about that, the fact that you have to go raise money? Does that upset you? Does it anger you? It it does, yeah. I think, obviously, I mean, it's a huge use of resources. We all all spend a lot of money on it and we all expect an extremely high standard of care. I think maybe that was... People trust it, don't they? People trust the NHS. It's people. People often say our NHS, don't they? Like they feel a degree of ownership over it. It sort of feels like everyone's very proud of it, and people trust it. But I think that was partially sort of what went wrong with me a little bit. I shouldn't. I think I trusted the the doctors and the health service a, a little bit too much. I thought, you know, if if, if it's serious, they're not just going to leave me with it, are they? It's you know, you have to you have to trust the doctors, you have to trust the professionals, and I think you do have to really really advocate for yourself because I think the people that make the loudest noise probably are the ones that get seen first and actually get things sorted when they need to be sorted. So. I don't know what countries a professor is referring to, where it's better. Or... Cancer care is better in every other European country, I think, apart from one. Of 18 developed countries, we come the lowest survival rates for all common cancers. So that gives you so much for our NHS. What would you say now, looking back, what do you think? I mean, the whole experience, the lockdown. I mean, we know, Pat Price says, every four weeks of delay, that increases your risk of a bad outcome i mean do you think that they should have done it differently well yeah absolutely i think the the excess death statistics i mean they basically speak for themselves don't they personally i i said from the beginning that the whole thing was a was a 
I mean, it was a huge overreaction, wasn't it? As you said, it was, you know, it didn't, didn't pose almost any risk to people who were who weren't elderly and were otherwise healthy. And I'm not saying those people should have been sacrificed on the altar of COVID, but I think the the sensible thing to do would have been to tell people who were immunocompromised or otherwise vulnerable that they should be shielding and the rest of us should have gone with our lives. Because what happened to avoid sacrificing those people what we've done is sacrificed a, a well a generation of young people almost we've so we sacrificed younger people otherwise healthy people like me to these otherwise easily preventable health conditions to, to protect people from covid it's, it's almost like we you know i don't want to sound ageist or anything but it, it feels a bit like we sacrificed the young to save the old a little bit and there's no shame in saying that because that's the first time that's been done in almost any previous example people always said young people and children first and we we reversed that wisdom shame on us shame on us you have had this phenomenal response to your gofundme appeal sixty-seven thousand pounds in just a few days but you're saying fifty thousand is a conservative estimate for all the consultations creations of the vaccines the vaccines themselves and you say john it will take the kindness of strangers to help you afford it well i think strangers i know planet normal listeners are very kind what what sort of war chest do you think you reasonably need now going forward yeah i mean i i said fifty thousand. i think would probably would would get me the initial consultations the creation of the vaccine and probably the first four vaccines which if they work is a great start to getting the ball rolling. From what I understand from other people who have had these and it's been curative, they sort of need a, a maintenance dose of them every year or so to um, keep keep your immune system stimulated and keep the, the vaccine effect going. So I think it's, it's going to be an ongoing cost for me, unfortunately. So I think... A hundred would be would be absolutely amazing. I'm, I don't know if it's going to be possible to get to that. Yeah, I think unfortunately this isn't going away. And even if you do cure your cancer, there's the chances of it coming back are extremely high. Especially seeing in in my case where it's been seen to be quite aggressive. So whatever I do earn and don't don't spend straight away is just going to go away for further treatment. So yeah, it's it's probably going to have to last me a, a number of years. Hopefully. Well, I think you sound amazing. I'm more upset than you. <laughs> absolutely amazing. And here on Planet Normal, we, we love fighting spirit. You're absolutely amazing. And, and we feel so cross about the lockdown and what it's done to so many thousands of people who deserved a lot better from our, our health service. And we are sending you all our prayers, hopefully large amounts of money. Come on, listeners. Godspeed. John, you're fantastic. Thank you for sparing the time to tell us about your story. Thanks, Alison, and thanks everyone who's who's listening. Women's football, Euro final, England versus Germany, Wembley, sold out stadium, and then to go on and win it. It was just insane. A lot of the chatter afterwards was I really hope it's not the ACL, I hope it's everything else. I'd worked in the Olympic and Paralympic system for a number of years. No one had ever said the word periods. No one had talked about menstrual cycles. I've totally subscribed to best person for the job, but often the best person for the job could well be a female, but society isn't ready for that yet. All I'm saying is that everybody should know how to swim. I can't fathom how you can try and say that that is troublemaking or anything like that. Every time I hear somebody talk about investing in women's sport, 
and talking about it as if it's some sort of donation <laughs> or like charity. You're welcome. It's just such a weird way to tell me that you're bad at business. The Telegraph Women's Sport Podcast with me, Sam Quek. Follow now so you don't miss an episode. That was Planet Normal listener and cancer patient John Chappell, and all the best to him. In February, Planet Normal welcomed the Telegraph's superb science editor, Sarah Napton. Sarah told us about the frustrations of being a science as opposed to a political journalist during COVID lockdown. And she argued that while vaccines allowed the country to get back to normal after the pandemic, information about potential side effects is not as well publicised as it should be. So welcome, Sarah. I wanted to start by asking you about something that Jonathan Sumption wrote recently in The Telegraph, the distinguished jurisprude, of course, former Supreme Court judge. The contribution of lockdowns to long-term excess deaths, wrote Sumption, from other causes is becoming increasingly obvious. In your view, Sarah Napton, is that statement scientifically justified? I think it is justified and I think it's probably been justified from the very beginning of the pandemic. I think we knew from the beginning we were going to have a huge fallout and I always think that it wasn't so much as kicking the can down the road as the atom bomb. I mean, the amount of deaths that probably will be eventually linked to the pandemic, I suspect, will be way more than were caused by COVID. This week, I think excess deaths has gone down slightly, but we've been having figures that are up to nearly 3,000 excess deaths a week, which is it's huge amounts. When you think in the first lockdown in 2020, we were having about 213 deaths a day. And we're seeing now sort of 400 plus deaths a day from causes that aren't COVID. So yeah, I think I think he's absolutely right. I think it's a huge problem. Sarah, you've been right at the centre of, I was going to say the biggest story of the past three years, but it's the biggest story of the century, isn't it? I'd like to know how it felt doing your job during this incredibly controversial and turbulent period, did you, like us, get a lot of criticism for letting down one group or another? And do you think the government mantra that they were following the science was ever justified, given that surely there's no such thing as an agreed science? Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And sort of coming back to the, the first part of that, I found it incredibly tough. And I think a lot of my colleagues have as well. I mean, we were, we were facing something that was entirely new, learning the science in real time. And I think because it was affecting everybody, everyone had a very personal view on it that often went beyond what the science was saying. It went beyond just being able to look at it from a very focused scientific point of view. I don't think anyone was really able to do that. It was difficult treading that line. I think scientists found it hard to tread that line. And I think you're right in the sense when they said they were following the science, it was almost impossible to do. I mean, there's no such thing as the science and there shouldn't ever be such a thing as the science. We should just be monitoring it in real time and making adjustments as it happens. And I think if anything, the government tried to pass the buck too much with that phrase, follow the science, and really wanted to use it as a way to apportion blame when they got things wrong. I think they wanted to be able to say, you know, well, we, we, we saw the modelling, we were told to do that. And so that they didn't have much blame themselves. But, you know, clearly, I think from the beginning, they needed to look far more widely than just the damage that the virus was causing. And they didn't. And we, we knew they didn't. And personally, for a journalist, bugging them all the time, trying to ask them, you know, where is this extra work you're doing on how it's going to affect the economy, how it's going to affect mental health or education? Where is that work? Who's doing that work? Where are the economists? Nobody was doing it. it was, the focus was so narrow. 
that it was very difficult to do my job and try and come up with a kind of rounded view of what was going on and what was best for everyone because we, the data wasn't just there and the government wasn't even seeking the data. So that was very difficult. I think from a, just a personal perspective, I feel a little bit bruised, actually. I feel like I've pleased no one. I think trying to tread the middle ground is often the most difficult thing to do because you don't please anyone. You know, the people on one side say you're not doing enough and the people on the other say you're an idiot. So trying to walk that narrow line of really being balanced is really tricky. I feel a bit, I don't know, I've, I've lost slightly my faith in scientists. I always sort of held scientists up as this group that was kind of infallible. I was probably very naive and thought that they, you know, only had the greater good in their sights. And it's hit home to me just how partisan some scientists are. And I think academia can often be quite left-wing and quite paternalistic. And I think that really hit home in the pandemic. There was this real swathe of certain scientists who just, it was very obvious they wanted to control everything rather than allowing people to make up their own minds and do what was right for them and trust people to make sensible decisions. So you are a reporter, Sarah, obviously a very, very distinguished reporter and science editor of Britain's biggest selling quality newspaper. Alison and I are more, while we've both been reporters, we're a bit more bolshy. We're, we're more opinion writers, but we are all journalists. And I wondered what you think about how our trade covered lockdown, because an awful lot of people are angry at how journalists acted during lockdown, particularly broadcasters, but quite a lot of print journalists too. How did you feel in particular, Sarah, when as a specialist science journalist, you had to watch political editors at those Downing Street COVID briefings, asking wholly unscientific questions, asking repeatedly for lockdown to be faster, longer, firmer, trying to get their clips for the Tea Time News. How did that make you feel as a journalist? It was definitely unfortunate. And I think probably if they did it again, they would invite the science and health press in rather than the political journalists. I'm not sure it was particularly well done. I think on both sides, I don't think, you know, the political journalists didn't really understand the scientific arguments. And then the government kind of got bounced into decisions because they were being pressed, being on live TV with you know, <laughs> a very volatile press pack. So I think they were, they were struggling as much as anyone, but it was, it was very frustrating for us because we were having lots of background briefings with sort of Sir Patrick Vance and Chris Whitty and Often you would get situations where the, when we were at a time where people really weren't allowed to go outside very much and you were only allowed one walk a day and there was fears about you sort of meeting people even outside, which there was never any scientific basis for whatsoever. And we, you know, behind the scenes, we, we kept saying, this is nonsense. Anyone with a basic knowledge of fluid dynamics knows this is crazy. Like you can't get a virus when you're just walk, walking by the sea. I love it when journalists use phrases like fluid dynamics. My, my pulse quickens. <laughs> <laughs> but frustratingly, we'd be in these um, background briefings, which were, you know, unreportable, where they'd be agreeing with us sort of saying yeah you know we know it's we know it's stupid we know it's wrong you can't you know you won't get COVID bumping into someone on the street and just having a, a two-second chat it's never happened before and then they'd be going on tv sort of almost saying the opposite and being in being pressured into saying the opposite and being pressured into you know political journalists would often throw these sort of ludicrous scenarios at the politicians who'd have to think on the spot how to deal with it and you that ended up was a major failing wasn't it of our political and media class we have all these incredibly experienced incredibly knowledgeable people like you not just at the telegraph across the press and yet all we could do was put braying political reporters on the telly 
asking for lockdown to be firmer, firmer, firmer the whole time. No nuance at all. I agree. Yeah, it was a strange time. It's one of those shouting at the telly kind of times. You just think this is this is crazy. You know, in some ways, some of the health and science teams on other papers didn't do that well either. I think we stuck our head above the parapet a lot more and questioned what was happening. And I think a lot of the science press really went along with what they were being fed. I think, you know, simply for fear that they didn't want to you know, get it wrong and cause people to do things that could cost lives. And I do understand that, but we're not the government. We're not, it's our job to be questioning stuff. And if you're not prepared to do that, I don't really think you should be in the job. I mean, that's what it's there for. Sarah, can we come on to the vaccine? Quite a fraught subject. Back at the beginning of the pandemic, Kate Bingham, the excellent vaccines are, said it was never a plan to vaccinate everyone, only the older population and vulnerable groups. Now, we've just seen the government saying it's withdrawing COVID jabs for the healthy under 50s from next week. I'm wondering what you think about the validity of ever needing to vaccinate healthy younger population, particularly teenagers and children. And then also to address the concerns about side effects. We've seen the British cardiologist Asim Malhotra raising the alarm about myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart, a side effect which has been linked to the mRNA vaccine, according to the British Heart Foundation. There have been around 30,000 more deaths than expected involving heart disease since the pandemic began. That's more than 250 additional deaths over expected rates each week. Do you think, A, that the rollout of the vaccine to the whole population was ever justified in terms of risk-benefit? And are these heart issues arising perhaps from general healthcare delays or might the COVID mRNA jabs play a role? So I think going back to the first point about whether the vaccine was ever needed for for healthy people, it's a really tricky one. I think when we first started going for vaccines, we really didn't know a lot about the virus at all. And so I think when the rollout began in kind of November, December 2020, it probably was for the best that everyone got it. At that point, we'd sort of gone back into second lockdown and the country was on its knees and it was an awful time. And I think if for nothing else to get us out of that, it was probably worth it. I think now it's difficult because I do think there is some sort of link between heart problems and the jab. And so I guess then you get to the question of whether the benefits are outweighing the risks. And I think arguably for younger people, they probably aren't. If you're a very healthy person, nothing wrong with you, no history or family history or genetic susceptibility to heart problems. I don't think you are going to put yourself much at harm by not having a jab these days compared to the risk of having it. And I think that's probably what most people would say now. It's a completely personal choice. I can understand if anyone wants to have it or not. You know, if I was in my 20s now, which was a long time ago, but and I was super healthy, nothing wrong with me, I wouldn't necessarily go for it because there clearly is some sort of, definitely an observational link that shows there's an increase in heart problems after particularly the mRNA jabs. And we don't know what the long-term outcome of that will be. And I think the other problem is people talk about vaccination has saved 112,000 lives in the first year alone. And you you weigh that against how many people have died from heart problems or, or other things linked to it. And in a way, that's it, that isn't the argument. People aren't statistics. Just because you've saved 112,000 lives over here doesn't mean this one person is expendable over here. 
who would never have died because they weren't at risk in the first place. So for them, getting a COVID jab, you know, even if they had caught COVID, it wouldn't have probably done them much harm anyway. So it's, it's a really tricky one. And I don't think we'll have any answers probably for another decade. But I do think, I do think there's definitely something there with the heart problems. And I think there's good evidence of what might be causing it. There's a, an idea that when you get a jab, sometimes your body basically mistakes the protein it's trying to fight for proteins in the heart or peptides in the heart. And then it's kind of this idea of molecular mimicry. And then it starts fighting you. It basically causes autoimmunity and starts battling you rather rather than the virus. But that can happen. That happens with viruses. So if you get COVID, that that can happen to you as well. And so when you get the vaccine, that's kind of happening to you on a lower level to fewer people. So yeah, there's an issue there. I think people need to be aware of it. And I think people should be aware of it and they should be told about it so they can make up their own minds. It strikes me that if we didn't have the war in Ukraine going on, the cost of living crisis and so on, there'd be much more public and press comment about the upcoming public inquiry into COVID lockdown. I know you follow these issues very closely. So so give us an update about where we are, when we can expect that in public inquiry and what the scope of it may be. So public inquiry should be starting, I think the first session start in the summer, it keeps getting pushed back and there's lots of preliminary inquiries. The initial ones will be looking at preparedness and whether we were ready for it. And then it will go on to how the government handled it and and the aftermath and the collateral damage. So it does seem to be going to look at the, the whole scope of it. I think there's some worry that it may not be looking at children sufficiently. I know some people have talked to me about how they don't think it's focusing as much on the the damage that children have received from the the pandemic, which is unfortunate because they seem to have been the most badly affected in in lots of ways and, and will be for some time to come. But I mean, we could end up with sort of two, three inquiries. It could be that this drags on forever. And in a a sense, it's necessary, but I kind of do think at some point, we have to get out of the pandemic, don't we? We can't just be constantly looking back and, and, and focusing on it and think we need to sort of move forward. Do you think there will be lessons learned? Will we end up with a kind of conclusion that maybe we should take a more Great Barrington Declaration approach where we shield the vulnerable and the rest of us get on with our lives? I really hope so. I think great, the Great Barrington Declaration got a lot of stick and it, it wasn't really justified. I think the idea, looking back, it was, you know, in a way, it was kind of what Sweden did slightly. I mean, they didn't actually protect their vulnerable that well, Sweden, but they did kind of um, give people the opportunity to just make decisions for themselves and look after themselves and take precautions when they wanted to without shutting the country down. And, you know, they have one of the lowest excess death rates of, of anywhere. So... I do think that should be a lesson in how differently we can handle things. I'm not sure we'll learn that lesson. I, I, I fear that the same people who had the biggest say during the pandemic will be wheeled out um, to have the biggest say again in the inquiry. I just think that's how it will work and it will be very sad if that happens, but I, I fear that it will happen like that. That's my fear as well, Sarah. Now, Sinetra Gupta, who is Great Barrington, obviously is a great friend of Planet Normal. Sinetra's point has always been is that modelling, scientific modelling, was not there to tell politicians what to do. It was to provide a range of options. Looking back at that, do do you feel now in some way that the science that, that you write about was traduced? Yeah. I mean, I, I was a big critic of models because I, I felt they often 
had the wrong data in them. They were often too late. Everything was moving too fast to really rely on them. And it would have been far better to be relying on real world data. And I think most people accept that now. And I know definitely during the Omicron wave, when the modeling was suggesting horrific numbers, the government basically abandoned it and just relied on what was happening on the ground. And we ended up not having restrictions and it it worked out. And I think, I hope that that's a lesson that's been learned, definitely, because I've interviewed Graeme Medley about this, who was over at um, London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, who was the liaison between the government and, and SAGE at the time. And he said, he specifically said model should never have been used to lock down the country. You know, I think there's a quote from him that a week's a long time in politics, but it's an age in a pandemic. And you can't be relying on models that were produced 10 days earlier to say where you're going to be in the next six weeks, which is what they were doing and got highly criticized for. I mean, the information commissioner was involved because they, they were so badly using models and interpreting them wrongly. So hopefully if we do it again, they won't rely so heavily on them because I think they have been shown to be quite flawed at times. That's a fantastic interview, Sarah. Planet Normal listeners know all about where Alison and I come from, our journalism, what our animus is, what drives us. You're a very highly respected Fleet Street writer, but you're not known as somebody who has a kind of really outgoing personality. So just tell us a little bit about your background and what makes you the journalist you are. Why do you put yourself through the pain, the trauma of national newspaper journalism? That's a good question. And I I wake up in the middle of the night thinking exactly that quite often, actually. Um, And I don't have an answer. And perhaps today's the day that I'll decide it's not worth it anymore. I don't have an agenda at all. I've never really been that political on either side, which I think just allows me to just tread a line where I'm just, I'm just looking at the evidence. I just want to know what the truth is. I don't care who's wrong or right. I don't care if I'm even wrong or right. I just want to get find out what's going on. So I guess that drives me background wise. Um, I did a degree in archaeology way back in, back in the day and then started working on a local newspaper. Um, and then moved to London working as a, a court reporter at the old Bailey doing lots of crime reporting and then went to the Guardian newspaper. Um, and came to the Telegraph and worked on the news desk as a news editor for a while. And then for the last sort of 10 years, I've been doing this. So sort of come full circle back to a sort of my original science background or sort of social sciences background. But yeah, I think, yeah, I just, I kind of, I'm just a bit, I guess, intrepid to, to get to, to get to find out what's going on. I don't like people keeping me in the dark about stuff. So maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's it. <laughs> well, you're, you're a credit to the Telegraph. Sarah, we wanted to have you on and tell you how much we admire your work. And thanks so much for joining us here on Planet Normal. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find the podcast so the Planet Normal family can grow. Join us next Thursday for another holiday special as we bring you more from the Planet Normal archive. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.